Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland this week. This week on Nerdcast, first there was a long list, and now there's a short list of names to replace the retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Plus, we'll talk about some of the stakes surrounding this nomination by looking ahead at some of the big cases on the horizon for the Supreme Court. Turns out that whomever Donald Trump picks is soon going to be asked to weigh in on a lot of cases involving Donald Trump. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast to rate us and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One last note before we begin. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern time on Thursday, July 5th, so it's all up to date as of then. Let's get started. I want to welcome our guests today. We've got two Politico White House reporters who also happen to be Nerdcast rookies. Lorraine Wallert, hello. Hey there, Charlie. And Chris Catalago, welcome. Big honor to be with you. What was your first 4th of July in Washington, D.C.? It was good. We have a little one, so we missed the fireworks, but certainly heard them from inside. (laughs) God, I don't miss that. Time for our first data point. Six or seven. We're not entirely sure. That's how many people who we know or we think we know the president has interviewed to be the next Supreme Court nominee. We know uh, optics matter a great deal to this president, and we know that uh, he likes TV-friendly staffers, TV-friendly everything. Uh, what are we likely to see out of this nominee? What's the profile going to look like, Lorraine? What is What kind of candidate is likely to emerge as uh, Trump's final pick here? First of all, somebody who's TV-friendly. Uh, there's several candidates that meet that, that category. Um, it would be optically great for him to pick a woman um, because he is going to choose somebody who, according to him, is pro-life. Uh, so, uh, you know, he interviewed an Indian American um um, Mitch McConnell's favorite for the for the job. So who's that? Uh, Thurl Mall, um, already a, an appellate court judge. Um, optics are going to matter. I think they're. I think that uh, the fact that there are two women on the short list is not insignificant. And those two women um, are Amy Barrett and Joan Larson. And yeah, I, you know, we we had a really good story today about um, Kavanaugh looking very uh, made for prime time uh, in a photo during his swearing in. Brett Kavanaugh, a U.S. district judge from Maryland. But then off in the corner was President Bush smiling, which kind of ruins the mood, right? If you're Trump. Because Trump can't stand him. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, you have, uh, Trump is really, really drawn to a compelling story. And if if you can tell a compelling story about someone who is, who has sort of the the East Coast law degree, but sort of a Midwestern uh, way about them, a sort of middle America, someone that appeals to his supporters. He loves that. He talks about people being from central casting a lot. Um, and that's another factor. But I have to go back again to the list because 
while we're talking about sort of these potential storylines and potential camera appeal that someone might have, we're not talking about someone who's out of nowhere. We're talking about narrowing down folks that have already been largely vetted and largely uh, approved by uh, by conservatives. So, you know, these people would be happy with, with a lot of uh, the potential picks out there. And it just kind of comes down, as Trump likes to say, uh, to the chemistry he might feel between him and the, uh, the nominee. So, Chris, tell me a little bit about the list. I mean, we keep hearing in D.C. about the quote, the list, end quote. What is the list and why is everybody talking about it? So you can't overstate the importance of this list. This is the list that Trump released in uh, 2016. Uh, This is something that really helped get conservatives behind his campaign. Folks who were skeptical, folks who were on the fence saw this list of potential justices and, uh, and really came around, even some of the groups that were saying anybody but Trump during the primary. And so now you've got this list which produced Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch now, uh, who conservatives universally love, and they very much want to see another pick in the mold of Gorsuch. Uh, the idea that this list has been out there has helped um, has helped kind of focus the process. And um, you know, you also see, as Lorraine mentioned, folks on the left already lining up, doing some oppo research um, as uh, as Trump um, as the deadline kind of ticks. So. We know there are seven people, or at least the White House says seven people have come in uh, or they've talked to seven people. Do we know their names at all? Who are, I mean, who are these people? We know a few of them for sure. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is one of them. Amy Barrett is another. Um, uh, Raymond Kefledge is also frequently cited. Tom Hardiman is on the list. Uh, Thoramal is on the list. Um, he's a friend of uh, Mitch McConnell. I, I'm not convinced that he's on the short short list. Here's the thing. You have let's let's start with these top 3 um, favorites. Kavanaugh, Barrett, uh, who who's a woman and Kefledge. Uh, there's you're already starting to see some divisions. Um, people sort of lining up between one or another of these candidates. Um, people uh, the social conservatives, the um, pro-life groups, especially the um, textualists, the originalists, are really would be really thrilled with uh, an Amy Barrett. She's pretty strong in abortion um, for them. Uh, maybe less so with Kavanaugh um, and and business groups like Kavanaugh. So you know it'll be interesting to see if the right writ large, you know, business community, establishment Republicans. And uh, you know, social conservatives can all stick together behind a single, uh, single candidate. So, are all these names from the list, Chris? Or is uh, has the president signaled that he might go beyond the list to look at potential Supreme Court nominees, including Judge Judy? Within moments of uh, Justice Kennedy coming in and and uh, meeting with Trump and giving him the letter, Trump was already telling reporters that he was going off, he was going to go off the list, which assured a lot of folks that this was going to be. The other thing the White House I think stresses is that while there is a lot of jockeying and lobbying for uh, w- one of these three in particular, top three, to get the uh, the choice. I think, you know, what the White House is putting out there is that this has been a pretty structured process, certainly when you compare it to some of the other uh, uh, processes that the White House has gone through. This is this is sort of the most uh, normal you're going to see this White House. And, and I think because the, the way the council's office has structured it, um, the way they're structuring it through the press, 
you have um, people kind of making their opinion clear and all of that being filtered kind of through the White House. And I think that that has uh, – they're hoping, as we get closer to this announcement, preventing any kind of big leaks from coming out because we know that Trump wants to build the drama and then have this big reality show announcement. Yeah, well, and, and don't forget last – okay, don't forget. Let's let's put this in context of President Trump, okay? We all remember the VA secretary, you know, and I'm just going to pick my personal doctor and I'm just going to, you know, oh, I'm going to go with this guy. Oh, I'm just going to happen to fire the VA secretary with no warning. You know, this is exi- – the list is the bulwark against Judge Judy, right? Like this is to all along, uh, you know, uh, has been used as a tool to keep the president in line. And so far, it seems to have worked. So fingers crossed. And so the the likelihood sounds low then that we're going to get a sort of uh, talk show kind of candidate uh, for the nomination, right? Is, is I, I would say it's so. very low. I think very so. Low. Yeah. So okay. far, yeah. So far, so good. Well, now you guys had a good piece of reporting this week uh, that I liked a lot. And it was about how the list actually cuts two ways. That on the one hand, it reassures conservatives who weren't really sure about Donald Trump and where they stood about him. He made them really uncomfortable. Um, and then the other way the list cuts was that liberals are now using it to take advantage of uh, who's on it, and to do oppo research and, and run sort of uh, opposition campaigns against them. So can you talk a little bit about that, Lori? So in May, um, a group called Demand Justice stood up. It's a, a coalition of progressives, um, people you might guess, like a, a, a pro-choice groups, civil rights groups, NAACP. These guys set up a group in May anticipating that Kennedy would be stepping down. And they've already done their oppo research on all or most of these candidates. They've already started airing ads online, um, putting out messaging pieces, that sort of thing. So so in some ways, this is actually um, given them a head start in terms of fighting whoever Trump picks. They've They've got their ditch the list campaign, and we've even seen some Republicans, for example, Susan Collins, you know, you know sort of adopt that message. And I think the White House was clearly prepared for this. You saw within moments of the announcement uh, media focusing in on the Republican senators who are sort of a question mark here, Collins and Murkowski. But the White House immediately sort of started pointing the finger at these red state Democrats and saying these are folks who you know, are running in districts that Trump won big and that they cannot potentially afford to, uh, to not vote for this pick as uh, some of them did for Gorsuch. And I think um, that's where you really see this pressure from the left come in because this being an election year, you know, they, they need that energy. So they're either going to sort of upset the, uh, the activist base or they're, uh, they're going to upset, you know, the, the, the diehard Trump voters in their district. So it's a, it's a really tough choice for them. And I think that's where you're going to see the lobbying on both sides really come in. Well, it's amazing to hear you both talk about the, uh, the efforts that are underway on both sides. And what, what's striking about it is the framing. You're, you're talking about it almost in terms of a, a, a political campaign, almost like a national campaign or a statewide campaign, oppo research, uh, messaging, ad campaigns. Chris, is it a, you've covered a lot of campaigns like is it exactly like a uh an election campaign yeah there's a war room there's uh someone the white house has tapped to do communication there's someone who's already out there strategizing with the grassroots groups and then of course you have the council's office which is doing a lot of the back and forth with donald trump so 
I think this is very much a campaign. You know, we wondered a lot uh, once, uh, you know, the immigration legislation sort of blew up and, and, a, and a bunch of those things sort of stalled on the Hill, how Trump was going to spend this summer besides his meeting with foreign leaders. And this has really been occupying their time. And the other thing it's done is it's really sort of pulled together some of the folks in the in the White House from various different departments kind of behind a common cause, you could say. I mean, this the, there are a lot of uh, uh, things that go on there that where people are on different pages. But when it comes to the Supreme Court pick, and the list is a big part of this. These are people who you know, see this as probably one of the most important things that the president is going to do. And and it's not unusual. I mean, let's let's take a step back. It's not unusual for the Supreme Court to be politicized or judges to be politicized. I mean, in most states, judges run for office. They're elected officials. Now you get up to the federal level, the Supreme Court level. It's no less political. Um, you know, when um, George Bush was naming someone to the Supreme Court, you know, he had a dream team of people. Um, it was Jay Sekulow, Leonard Leo, and Boyden Gray, three old longtime Republicans who were tasked with holding together the right to get Bush's nominee through. Um, and that was John Roberts. Um, so, you know, that was a major political campaign. So this is not a new thing. Um, I think it might be heightened because we do have the court now suddenly the balance is going to shift for sure on the court. And uh, and so I think the left is going to get a lot more riled up than they have in the past. Well, I want to thank you both uh, very much for coming here today. It was great having you the first time. And you guys were excellent. Lorraine, thanks so much. Thank you. Fun. Chris, thanks. Thank you so much. Vox has a new daily podcast you should add to your routine. It's called Today Explained. Every afternoon, Vox's team of public radio expats puts together a 20-minute look at an essential news story. It's always rich in production and fun to listen to. Imagine a running list of all the Mueller indictments set to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, or an explainer on the history of kneeling in pro sports, or why Saudi Arabian women finally getting the right to drive isn't as progressive as it seems. And then subscribe to Today Explained wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, on to our next data point, which is 38. There are 38 cases the Supreme Court has agreed to hear next year. And there are many more cases out there that the court could hear that involve President Trump himself. Josh Gerstein is just the man to talk about it. He covers the Supreme Court for Politico. Hi, Josh. Hey, Charlie. Josh, this is uh, two weeks in a row for you, huh? Uh, it is. It's almost a streak. <laughs> Do you feel as if Nerdcast has maybe catapulted you into the national spotlight? I feel that um, my overall perceptions of me are definitely on the rise. My media presence is, is increasingly intense. Well, I'm sure you're stopped for autographs regularly in the mall. So let's get on to the uh, Supreme Court nomination. Uh, a president's policies are often decided at the Supreme Court, but you've been doing some digging on cases uh, the court could hear that actually involve the president personally. How unusual is that? I'm trying to remember the last time the court weighed in on something like that. Was it Clinton Jones? Clinton versus Paul Jones? I think that would be the last time. I mean, it depends how broadly you want to sort of cast a, your lot here and say, well, a everything the an administration does theoretically is important to the president. And so maybe uh, half the docket is important to the president. But really, when you're talking about personal cases involving the president's personal activities, his business activities, things that are 
essential to his personal ethics. Very rare for that kind of thing to come up. Uh, not completely unheard of. You mentioned that Cl- under Bill Clinton, you had the Paula Jones civil suit that the Supreme Court said could go forward while he was president. Uh, and some of the people I talked to uh, for a story on this said there has been some litigation even before that uh, with President Nixon. There was a bunch of litigation over various issues related uh, to his uh, personal papers and 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 his production of documents and things along those lines. But most of that took place after he was out of office. And so you didn't have a situation where justices were passing on, you know, the personal activities of a sitting president. Okay, then is this about personal conduct, business conduct? What kind of conduct is is this all related to, all these cases? Well, I mean, the highest profile thing, obviously, would be the Trump-Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, which, you know, it's unclear the degree to which it is intensely focused on the president personally. It's obviously quite quite critical to him politically uh, as a political matter. Um, there is this question of whether he obstructed uh, justice in his activities surrounding the firing of a former FBI uh, director, uh, Jim Comey. Uh, but that investigation could present issues to the Supreme Court pretty quickly. There's already somebody who's challenging a grand jury subpoena with an effort or trying to make an effort to uh, put it together a broader challenge to uh, special counsel Robert Mueller's authority and his legal legitimacy. And those kinds of cases can accelerate quite quickly and could really arrive at the court within a matter of, I would think, a couple months if if it you know if certain things happen. Uh, otherwise, it could be a bit longer, but there's no question that some of those issues are headed to the court. Um, beyond that, there's all the president's business activities. Very unusual situation to have a president with such widespread business holdings that's resulted in a lot of uh, litigation over whether he violated the or is violating the emoluments clause by taking money from uh, from foreign interests, and then you have some of the president's other uh, personal uh, issues, uh, largely related to women, with a couple of women uh, who claim to have had relationships with him or have, to have faced uh, some kind of sexual harassment from him pursuing suits against him. So that's a bit more in the in the Clinton vein. Uh, but the volume, I know of at least three suits that are pending right now that could go to the high court on that. So uh, altogether, it's a pretty impressive uh, docket of stuff related to the president himself. Well, is there any reason to think that uh, with all of these potential cases uh, going before the court, is there any reason to think that it might color his judgment in terms of who he picks to go on the court? Is there any indication of that at all? Uh, it's possible. Uh, I would say there's no outward indication of it. But if you look at who some of the candidates are, you have somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, who's a D.C. Circuit uh, judge who's considered one of the leading contenders to be picked by the president. Uh, it is possible that one of the factors that might attract uh, the president to Judge Kavanaugh is the fact that Judge Kavanaugh's on the record saying that he believes uh, there's too much litigation, uh, both civil and criminal, that a sitting president could face. And he doesn't think presidents should have to deal with those sorts of annoyances, essentially, uh, while they're in office. Uh, and he said this as someone who worked for former independent counsel Ken Starr. Uh, it's not a um, terribly unusual position among some Federalist Society conservative legal types to say sort of that the president's responsibilities are so critical uh, that he should not be uh, deterred in any way by civil suits being filed against him. And if you extend that far enough, it says, you know, he shouldn't be indicted and maybe he shouldn't even be forced to give grand jury testimony like pretty much every other citizen of the country is required to. So how does the court decide 
what cases it'll hear. Does an individual justice have a lot of sway in, in picking cases? And I'm asking that because not only because of the, the cases affecting the president himself, uh, but also because uh, there seem to be a lot of abortion-related cases percolating now in the lower courts. Um, so the basically requires the votes of four justices to take a case. Uh, so that's usually four out of nine, although remember Justice Kennedy has told us he's leaving on July 31st. So after that, it'll be four four out of eight, uh, at least until we get another uh, justice. Uh, so one vote can really make a difference if there's three justices that want to hear something that can give you the fourth vote uh, to put it on the docket. So um, it can be pretty significant. And it's also worth mentioning in some of these cases that uh, these things don't always break down along party lines. So we don't know exactly which justices may favor looking at specific cases. But there's one case uh, that has just recently been added to the court's docket uh, that could end up impacting Trump in a way, which is a case involving um, something called the dual sovereigns doctrine, which involves the-, the Oh, sure. Everybody knows that. Everybody's heard yeah. of that. It comes up all the time. But it basically involves uh, when the federal government and the state government try to charge you or put you on trial with the same basic offense. And the Supreme Court has said since the 1840s that that's okay, even though the Constitution says um, uh, has a provision against double jeopardy that people may have heard of. Um, the federal government can't put, really put you on trial twice for the same offense or charge you twice with the same offense. If two different, uh, the feds and the state do it, it's traditionally been okay. And there's a case that some four justices on the court have t- decided to take uh, that will go on the uh, on the docket to be argued in the fall. Uh, that brings up this issue. Can a guy who faced a gun charge uh, be charged with basically the same crime? Who cares? What does it have to do with Donald Trump? Well, look at some of the people uh, that could potentially inform against President Trump, like Paul Manafort. There's been a lot of talk that if the president gave pardons, uh, maybe the states like New York or New Jersey uh, might step in and bring state charges against some of the people in the Trump-Russia affair. Well, uh, if you're not allowed to bring state charges because federal charges were already brought, this case could potentially either leave that door open or slam it shut. So there's a lot of issues that can complicate a president's life that run through the Supreme Court. What other issues uh, can you envision going before the court? What else is on the horizon that stands to be affected by the change uh, from uh, Justice Kennedy, a swing swing vote like Justice Kennedy, to maybe someone who turns out to be uh, far more conservative? So I look at a couple different areas where I think Kennedy leaving could be pretty significant. Uh, Voting rights cases and gerrymandering cases come up fairly regularly, especially voting rights. But there's been a push to bring uh, partisan gerrymandering cases to the court. We have one in North Carolina where the courts struck down uh, uh, some maps there saying that they were too gerrymandered. uh, And the case has been sent back to North Carolina for the time being, but will probably pop back to the Supreme Court. Uh, Kennedy was somebody who was really on the fence about those kinds of cases. He thought partisan gerrymandering was wrong and that the courts should try to find something to do about it. He couldn't quite decide when the courts could practically do anything about it because it's it gets very mushy at the margins, let's put it that way. Uh, but he was in search of a case. He never quite found one that he thought could be um, enforced. Uh, a more conservative justice, I think, would just do what Justice John Ro- uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has said and just say, look, this is a political matter. It's simply too messy for the courts to get involved in. We're not going to have anything to do with it. Uh, another big area would be uh, issues related to same-sex marriage. I don't think that whoever uh, President Trump Trump puts on the court would overturn the decision guaranteeing same-sex marriage rights across the country. I think that would be um, 
too turbulent a thing for them to do. Uh, but there are many ways to cut it back by guaranteeing more rights to people who have religious objections or religious dissenters uh, who object to same-sex marriage and don't want to do business, for example, with people that are having same-sex weddings. We've already seen a couple cases like that brought to the court and sort of turned back. But I think cases like that are just going to keep coming. There's many, many more of them in the pipeline. And a, a more conservative uh, justice on the court uh, would tend, I think, to take that kind of a challenge very, very seriously and might issue a broad ruling that potentially might not only affect gay rights, but could even affect the rights of African-Americans and women. We had cases like this that came up in the 60s where people said, uh, I don't want to serve black people because my religion tells me I can't do it. And the courts generally said, too bad, you got to do it. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they take the same approach on same-sex marriage or, or a different one. So we talked a little bit about the ideological changes uh, that you, you might uh, sense on the court w with a new nominee. But what about – how does it affect the, the human dynamic in, in those chambers? Uh, what was Kennedy's relationship with like his – like with his fellow justices and, and how might that change going forward? So I think he tended to have a pretty a good relationship with most of the justices. I think sometimes it was probably annoying to many of the conservatives when he would not go their way. But he did serve as, you know, I think both a social bridge and a ideological bridge between two different wings of the court. Um, there's a lot of debate about, you know, how conservative was Kennedy or how liberal was he, uh, you know, uh, were these decisions on issues like gay rights really just exceptions to like a broader um, conservative jurisprudence. But I think as a as a just a practical matter, yes, he served as some kind of a, a bridge between uh, the wings of the court. Uh, there's definitely a change when a new justice comes on. I mean, we saw this with Justice Gorsuch. Uh, there have been reports that there was some tension even with uh, Sotomayor and maybe even with the chief justice about uh, some of the ways Gorsuch uh, conducted himself on the bench. Uh, sometimes his uh, decisions, I think some folks feel they have sort of a condescending tone, like, let me tell you about how the law works in case you don't know, little boy. Um, and so, so and some of the questions that he asked in the courtroom sometimes are so simplistic that I think people feel that they're in some kind of remedial uh, lesson uh, when, in fact, almost everybody watching those arguments is a pretty sophisticated observer, uh, maybe with the exception of the tourists who sometimes stand in the back in their shorts and shorts and T-shirts. So, so, so what do they think he's grandstanding with the overly simplistic questions? Yeah, uh, the, the sense is that everybody understands that Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't need a lecture uh, from Neil Gorsuch <laughs> on constitutional <laughs> jurisprudence, and he she understands what textualism and originalism in these concepts are. And obviously, when we look at a statute, uh, we're going to look, for example, at the text of the statute. Like everybody knows that that's that's where you begin, and you don't necessarily have to say, you know, when we're deciding how to interpret a statute, where we begin is with the text. You know, like there's just a excessive formalism and sort of a weird, um, uh, a, a weird kind of, uh, like I said, a remedial nature to some of his comments and his opinions that I think rub some people the wrong way. Josh, one last question uh, I want to ask you before we let you go. I'm really curious to know where where do conservatives stand on the question of Justice Kennedy's legacy? Do they look at him with disdain in the way that they look at uh, David Souter as a huge, enormous mistake, or uh, do they have a different view of him? Uh, you know, I think a lot of them don't hold Kennedy in that high regard. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this whole campaign to try to ease Kennedy off the court and make him feel 
comfortable with the notion of leaving the court is that it's largely led by people that, in my view, don't have a lot of respect for Justice Kennedy, which is a, a strange position to be in, right, to try to convince somebody uh, that they can you know, safely leave their job and their legacy will be intact when you don't agree with a lot of the decisions they've made. So there's no question that a lot of conservatives are irked by uh, Kennedy's gay marriage decisions, are irked by his decisions on things like affirmative action, and just feel that uh, <laughs> he... he and just feel that he betrayed sort of a, the conservative mold of what, a, say, a Reagan appointee should be. Um, but I don't get the sense that there's this sense of um, a, a deep betrayal or a complete reversal that you saw with somebody like uh, David Souter that they feel just wandered completely off the reservation. It's hard to argue uh, that when you look at Anthony Kennedy's rulings uh, over the last couple decades that they aren't predominantly conservative in nature. Not every one of those decisions makes the front page of the newspaper, but the legal scholars do follow them. And uh, aside from the, the the hot button, some of the hot button issues, there's no question that on most of the issues going before the court, he provided a fairly reliable conservative vote, especially in the last year or so. That's really interesting. Uh, thank you so much. This this has been excellent. I really learned a lot today. Thanks for coming in. Hey, Charlie, no problem. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Okay, as promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to a Nerdcast superfan. His name is Charlie, and he's from the land down under. He's going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrienne Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and the illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks, Charlie. Listeners, we found Charlie, not just because he has a great name, but because he emailed to say he was a fan. If you're a Nerdcast podcast fan who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot us an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thanks, and we'll talk next week. All right. That was really good, Josh. Okay, Thank you. I feel like, but like you're the lawyer and I'm not the lawyer. Like, I feel like I'm trying to teach the master here. This doesn't seem, you know, right.